1: Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. (laughs) Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan of Tarth Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you, my friend? Dagan, first of his
2: name, King of the Andals.
1: you're like looking at your watch after a while like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> breaker of chains yeah Bre- breaker of chains. um the unburnt is my favorite one Oh, Oh, the unburnt that's yeah, another one that's a cool one not the unsullied not the unsullied no I, <laughs> they would have lobbed my dick off
2: i'm quite sullied
1: yeah I'm quite, <laughs> a little hairy and a little seedy dig how are you my friend what's what's going cooking on? Life? Oh, nothing nothing really i mean just hot. This, the other it must be really hot down there in VA. Ninety-four huh? right now. It says ninety-four. Oof. So I'll be going to the pool after this. In fact, I've been I've been floating around the pool when it, when I'm able, and um, I have here the first Game of Thrones book. I don't know if you'll be able to see it because we have degraded quality when we're recording. But um, and I've uh,
2: look at that bookmark. you almost worn, done.
1: Here's the worn edge of the book, and then what? yeah, I'm almost done. I have a less fewer, fewer than a hundred pages left because there's a there's like pretty large appendices at the end. Oh, cool. okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, but so the book is, I don't know, what is it? 807 pages and I'm on three, 702. So oh, you almost there, but I haven't, I haven't read much in, a, in the last week. Like I, so I've read 700 pages and I would say that there were two sittings where I read a hundred pages each, That's but huge. I've been reading it for like a month. So it's, and the books just get bigger than this. So who the hell knows? But, but I've been really enjoying and really enjoying immersing myself in this and understanding almost getting a little smug. Okay. Maybe? Because sure. I have a little bit of a better understanding now of Game of Thrones. You're in the no more. Right. I'm, a, sure. I'm feeling a little smug about it, but but I'm not I'm not anywhere near where I need to be. And I still have no idea what's going on in some of the, you know, in, in the show itself, I have no idea what's going on. Sure. Uh, but it, we're now in season seven in the show. I'm going to need you to explain some shit to me because <sighs> I'm like, I don't know. We have I don't come know. a long way. But, uh, Dave, before we get into, you know, Game of Thrones and Knockback, of course, is our weekly retro and nostalgia podcast my brother and I do. Each and every week, and you can get it on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Last Day Media. But before we get into the topic at hand, which is our seventh Game of Thrones episode, because uh, we're doing it season by season, and no, we will not do the books. <laughs> can you just leave us alone? <laughs> but um, before we get into that, we like to stretch our legs a little bit. So, Dig, what's on your mind? What do you want to talk about this week?
2: Hold up that book one more time. No, no indication that you dropped that in the pool. No, I no, can't I tell you I, how many books I've dropped in the bathtub.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. At least seven. At least. I've done that.
2: I've done that. (laughs) It's like, oh, no. (laughs) Possibly dad's hand-me-down Hobbit book, early printing. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. Too bad. Possibly.
2: I didn't say definitely. I'll leave it
1: ambiguous. Yeah, leave it and go bury it in the backyard. (laughs) But one thing that did happen it's is because it's so hot and then I'm coming into the AC and everything is that the pages started falling off. You know how you like when you crease the book in there. Oh, I glued to the, so I got like Gorilla Glue and just started. It's like it's pretty ramshackle right now, but it's <laughs> not, binding. But I like book I walking, like a worn book, dude. I, I, I can't read a paperback book and not destroy it. Like, I don't know how else to do it because yeah. I'm curving it. And I don't know. I, I like that. It's nice. Yeah, you kind it's of nice. push and pull. That's part of the appeal, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. You know, playing into the fantasy
2: thing. This is something I was excited to talk to you about. Now, you know, Kyle, I grew up with a bunch of guys that, you know, and it, it kind of through skateboarding, starting in junior high and all the way through high school, in our neighborhood that I skated with that were big D&D heads, big role-playing game heads, and then eventually got into Warhammer and Shadowrun. These were like really like role-playing dudes. Some were slightly younger than me. Some were my age. Some were a little bit older. Common theme is they all had older brothers that were kind of older than me by five or six years. And I think they all got it from their older brothers. Like it was kind of a handed down tradition, the whole D&D thing, the whole role-playing thing. And these were the same guys that introduced us to like our first indie comic books. Like they were on the cutting edge. They showed me my first Ninja Turtles graphic novel in the 80s. They were... You know, they had Electra Assassin posters on their wall and introduced me to Bill Sankiewicz and all this crazy nerdy shit. But certainly the role playing thing. But for some reason, man, I just escaped the bug. I never sat down to play with them. And I was invited at length time and again. But I just never said it down is so play.
1: surprising. It's so interesting that you didn't. It's choose so that odd hat. that
2: I avoided that somehow. And yeah. I wasn't um, adverse. You know, I wasn't adverse to trying to sit down and play. I just never did. And then later on, my best friend in college, my friend Colin, he was of the same mind. He invited me to play with his friend. He and his friends. I just never did. And so push comes to shove. And I've always been, oddly enough, this is the other weird thing that comes, in, comes into play too with this whole thing is that I'm kind of an armchair fan of D&D and the, the history and the lore. And I like to watch content on Critical roles. It's really strange, right? So I'm kind of like this backseat. D and D dude who's never sat down and actually played a game or a campaign or anything like that. And so in one of these YouTube videos that I was listening to while I was working about a month ago, I heard this crazy thing that Gary Gygax, right? Hmm. Co-founder, co-creator with Dave Arneson, whatever the story is there of D and D. I heard that Gygax was a notorious Tolkien slash Lord of the Rings hater. He hated the Tolkien, hated the Hobbit, hated the trilogy. And I was so surprised and a little dubious, by the way, about mm-hmm. this, because the yes. whole thing, right? Dwarves yeah. oh, yeah. and elves and, total and I know. I know, well, know how does that mean. make sense? Total bullshit. Total so total bullshit. supposedly he dismissed it. And then it gets into this whole thing that the Tolkien camp sued them at some point and there was bad blood and all this kind of stuff. So who knows? Maybe it was sour grapes, whatever it was. But that whole story got me into this sort of back into D&D, right? And I'm listening to content and I'm listening to the original heads and stories about Dave Arneson's biography. And it gets, gets me on into down, I'm tumbling down this rabbit hole like Alice with D&D over the last month. And the whole thing dovetails with seeing an old friend, my friend Jeff, who I haven't seen in a while. Now, Jeff is the husband of a girl that Helene grew up with in the area. He's also from the area where we live. And Helene's friend, Steph, is also an art teacher in the district. So I usually get to see Jeff at least once a year at the district art show. So I ran into him a couple of weeks ago. Now, years ago, he invited me to play D&D weekly with his friends. And I was, always, I, I was excited, but also a little nervous because these guys have probably been playing for a long time. How do I handle it? Do I sit down and kind of observe a couple of games for a couple of weeks and kind of see what it is, get the lay of the land before I jump in? I don't want to mess up their rhythm. I don't want to be the newbie who doesn't know what he's doing, kind of mess up the whole cadence of their game. So, and I think every time I saw Jeff once a year, once every six months, blah, 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 and he would always invite me and I would always be excited, but then it would never happen. So, it got into this thing of like a little bit of like a, the boy who cried wolf type of thing. So I'm talking to, to my friend Jeff a couple of weeks ago again, and he, we're talking about the game, but we get interrupted. So it doesn't get to the point where he invites me back. You know, I, I, I asked him at some point in the conversation, oh, you guys still playing D&D? He's like, yeah, we get together Monday nights, eight o'clock. It's super fun, blah, blah, blah. Then something happened where the conversation got interrupted and it never got to the point where I got invited again, but I was waiting for the moment. You know, because I really want to, really want to do it, right. you know? Right, right. So I'm wondering how to go about it tactfully. Do I invite myself? Do I kind of prod a little bit again and say, hey, about that d the Monday night D&D game, what do you think type of thing? Is it a little too pushy because I'm the newbie and maybe the other guys would kind of take exception to it? I think there's a, quite a few of them, like seven or eight guys that get together. So it's not like a it's not like an intimate thing, which I don't know if it's better or worse if it's less people, fewer people. That's a people lot of people, I, people. I, but
1: but I don't. I always played with just one or two other people when I played D anD. d So was, oh wow,
2: that's actually less. That's actually less um, intimidating for me. Yeah, I used to often play D anD.
1: d with just me and my friend Eric, and he would just be the dungeon master, and I would just be the player. Just two usually. people. Wow. But then we would play with some others and get some other people involved. I think this is an easy solve for you. I think that you tell just, me. You're friendly with them. I, I would just say like, hey man. Um, I know we were talking about D and D recently, and I know you have invited me in the past, and I wasn't able to make it. I, I I don't know if you're accepting new players, but I'd love to come hang out, at least observe a game and see what you guys are doing. I mean, it's, I think this is easier to solve than you'd not imagine. and you can also because I, I say that when I have to say things to people, I really do put this forward where I'm like, no pressure, you know. But yeah, do you want to do this? And so you can say that like literally, no pressure. I'm not going to be insulted if there's no room for me, but I'd love to be a part of what you're doing or at least learn more about it, come and hang out. And see, see it I'm sure they a lot of these people in my experience are very evangelical so I would imagine that they and I don't mean that in, in like the religious way I mean they're evangelical about their D&D games or their, oh their sure tabletop yeah, so I would imagine getting someone captive is good for them like I feel like that's probably fun it's like teaching it's like the few people in, in life that I've really introduced to or taught chess like and they sure. picked it up and they play it right, right. Like they know how to play chess now. That's that's satisfying for me because it's it's like having a child almost, you know, it's like, okay, like I was taught chess by this person and now I taught you and hopefully you'll teach someone else and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think it's the same same spirit here. I think you just have to have a real loose spirit and just be like, hey, man, no pressure. But yeah, and you can even throw in it like, you know, I was busy when you asked me last time. I just wasn't feeling confident. I was anxious or whatever. You can be honest, you know, kind of lay it lay it on thick if you want.
2: What do I need to know going in? Like, what are the as somebody who's experienced playing? Yeah. What do I need to know going in? Like, what are those three or four fundamentals that would help me bone up and not be
1: such a dunce and such a, you know, novice? It's so funny you ask this because I was just talking about this with Micah when we were walking the dogs because my nephew, our nephew, Declan. Email, uh, texted me lately, recently. and like, we should get a DD and d game going. And I was like, yeah, oh, what? Yeah. And it was literally just like last week. And I was like, that's, that's so really, funny. That's a fun idea. And I was telling Micah, because she didn't know this. And I don't know if you know this. There are different versions of D&D, right? Dungeons yeah. and Dragons, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, ADD right. version 2, and so on and so forth. Sure. Now, I played version 2 or whatever they called it. And that was like the see the thing was is that Dungeons and Dragons when it was made in the seventies stayed pretty static. Then they made Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and then they updated it. And that update, as far as I remember, was like the way you played Dungeons and Dragons for probably ten or fifteen years. Wow! And then they started making it easier because I remember when I was at IGN, I played a little bit version three or whatever, and they've started removing things and making it a little bit more straightforward. And so I don't know the specific rule set or what the character sheet looks like anymore. But I will say that you should study the character sheet and just see. You know, make, make sure you understand the translation of everything, how it uh, goes into the game. You're going to need your own dice, right? Four sided, six sided, eight sided, ten sided, twelve sided, twenty sided die. Okay. Right? Those are the, the different kinds of dice you're going to want. You probably want multiples of each, especially multiple four sided, six sided, eight sided die, because you sometimes will be rolling like five or six at a time. OK, um, like, for instance, if you're if you have like a an, a magic attack that hits four times and it's and it's four D six then that means you roll and that's what it says like the attack is four d six okay that's four dice. four you know uh that's that's four times die six okay right? so, gotcha so yeah anyway th- uh, so i would just keep that stuff in mind like just understand okay. how to play i think they got rid of i i thought someone told me they got rid of like that and like kind of more complicated stuff that was to hit armor class zero and it was like a number and you had to like it was like part of the mathematical equation of how things worked and if things hit And how much damage they did. And it was fucking really obtuse. I think think they got rid of that. And I think armor class AC is now like a more prevalent detractor. Like your weapon is attack this. Your armor class is this. Subtract one from the other. That's the damage. I I think it's like more like that now. But it wasn't like that when I played it. So they streamlined it. Which which
2: makes sense. They make it more appealing. And, you know, um, makes it more acceptable for people coming in. Less intimidating for people coming in.
1: Right, I I like complicated stuff, but it was only because I understood it at some point. I don't even really understand it at all anymore. But I bring that up only because they've updated it. Okay, like so they had that version two. I, it's not called version two. I don't remember what the hell it was called. It's called something like the second edition or something. And then that, and then, but then they started updating it like a lot. And I want to say they're on five or six or something, maybe even more than that now. Wow! And that's obviously to sell books and all that. But on my shelf, I have all my version two. I have like the monster manual and like the 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 dungeon master guide and like a bunch of supplements and class guides and stuff i was really nerdy about it yeah you were into it for a while
2: i remember that yeah i mean it's there's something so fascinating about it too. i feel like who knows And maybe this whole thing can end up with disappointment and it'll be a huge exhale but i feel like when i start playing i'm like where why didn't i start this when i was 11 years old Like, where have I been? Like, this is actually this was built for me, like type of thing. So and I want to see I want to see if that's how it resonates. And um, yeah, I I wanted your I wanted your advice. I'll let you know how it goes. I'll let you guys know how it goes.
1: Please do. That's it. Jeff, if you're listening, please text me. The other thing I want to say, and I'm sure people would give you this advice, too, is that depending on how you guys are playing, I mean, you you can read the room, but you're going to have to kind of buy in you know. Okay. And there are some people that play and and, and it's really and for more of my friends, it was really more about the numbers and like what we were doing. We weren't being like, I you know, we weren't like talking in character and stuff like that. It's like, all right, so you come into this bar and there's a dude here and it, we usually like draw maps and stuff like that. It's like, what do you want to do? And it's like, I want so to go cool. up to this guy and ask him that. But we didn't do like, excuse me, sir. And like, I tap him f- f- feverishly on the back and he, t- you know, I, I didn't. And then I roll to see if how he turns around. We didn't do any of that kind of shit. Okay. But, but it was always like, there's a role for everything. I think you know that, right? It's like, right. I want to, I want to convince him to come with us. It's like, all right, you have to, what is your, you know, I don't even know what it would be like your personality or luck or whatever. And then you have to like roll against that. And like his, his, it's cool.
2: I, I like love that it. Episode. Everything's
1: role based. Mm-hmm. You, you guys
2: map. didn't play with toys and figurines and settings and stuff. Like we that? had like No,
1: you- we had a, ma- we had, we would use maps, but we would draw them. Like, okay. um, I like and, that. Yeah, like so we would be like, here's a bar. And then we would draw like circles for tables and like, here's the yeah, bar. Like and then there's like, like X's that. for people. So you okay. just go in and you're like, all right, these are your different options, basically. And so we didn't have any like figures. I have some of those figures, but I never really used them. I never used like they would also sell like pre-made campaigns and stuff like that. But I think part of the part of what's fun is making your own. It's complicated. I mean, you sure. have to really being a dungeon master is very complex and not something I would ever really want to do. But so I, I give them a lot of credit. It's like a full time job. That's funny. See, I could see you being really good at that. Well, I think I would be good at it. I just think I'm too lazy to do it good, you know, do it <laughs> yeah. well. It's, it's like a lot of pressure. You have to like really get... And you also, you have to play with people that appreciate it. Imagine doing all that work and they, and no one even appreciates the work right. you did or whatever. It just but, goes over everybody's head. But yeah, there's it's so funny you brought this up because it was just, uh, we were just talking about that. It's um I, I love D&D and I used to also play the Star Wars role-playing game, which mm. was awesome. I loved that game. I would think that game was even better than D&D. That was from the late 80s, or early 90s, that particular set. I remember and I,
2: that. Yeah, I remember I, that being around.
1: I, I liked that a lot. That was super cool, early Star Wars licensed stuff. But I, later in my life, I got more into wargaming, like just passive Axis and Allies, Shogun-type games, sure, where it's just sure. army building and manufacture and all that. And you, I like that stuff more. And then I told you, we used to, I used to play in this thing called the Kamchaka Cup in, in, in uh, San Francisco, which was a risk tournament at this bar. I remember Risk. I remember you with Risk. I love Risk. I absolutely love Risk. Now, Risk is a very simple game. and yeah. It's almost too simple. It's not... That's why I love Shogun and Axis and Allies and games like that, where it's just way more complicated and you have, like, units and all this. But, yeah, I used to play, like, with buddies in the games industry. I don't know if they still do it, but, yeah, we had, like, a trophy and everything. And it was called the Kamchaka Cup because Kamchaka was, like, one of the Russian territories or whatever. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, that was good. Oh, but so um. I'll be interested to hear more about this, Dave. That's an interesting opening, well, timely opening. You and by insights. the way, to your to your points about Gary Gygax, yeah. I totally agree. Bullshit. That's and happy. I think the re- I think the reason he does that is because I don't know if it was the legality or he didn't want to be like people are like this is so obvious, right? And so he was like, no. <laughs> what? I never even heard of yeah, that. I don't shit. even know. I, and I'm like, <laughs> bu- I'm, there's really? no. I can't. I I guess I don't know enough about a lot of other things to say this definitively. But can you think of any? any ethereal idea of a fictional world steampunk right or right fantasy high fantasy can you think of anything more obviously influenced by one series than no. fantasy and lord of the rings i mean it's just it, it, and the hobbit it's no. nonsense so i i totally agree with you i think i've i've thought that in the past when i've saw, seen him say shit like that and i'm like <laughs> whatever dude you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> that
2: got me tumbling down the rabbit hole. It really did. I was like, I got it. I'm fascinated. I'm getting drawn back into this world again. It needs to culminate in something this time. So that's why. Yeah. Thanks for the insight. Um, yeah. I'm going to let you know how it goes. If yeah, I, get, it, the, if I get the proper invite. I'm going to jump on it this time. I'm not going to squander it. my opportunity this time.
1: Well, if, if you're you opening the door, you can. I mean, that's what you have to understand. You're going to look like a dickhead. Right. If you're the one kind of, unless you really don't like it, you shouldn't subject yourself to it. But I just, it is surprising because you are not only so deeply nerdy, but you're like a proto nerd.
2: Yeah, yeah. With I really anime
1: am. and with all these different things, it's so interesting. You could have been there at the beginning of this too. You just chose not to.
2: Got to make up for lost time. We'll see how it goes, my friend. Now, what about you? What's what's happening in your life? The life and times of
1: CM. Nothing really. Um, really just hanging out, trying to get things done. Just dealing with like a lot of different, you know, like I said last week, I'm just stressed out. Like the stress is getting higher and I'm not able to dissipate it enough. So after the show, I'm going to go and uh, just float in the pool and burn to a crisp in the sun and, there you go. Uh, and read Do, do uh, the
2: weekend proper, my friend.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I'll do and read maybe the rest of Game of Thrones. and And then, you know, I was thinking about you because. I don't know if you saw this. Have you seen the new TMNT brawler that just came out yesterday? Yes, from, everybody's talking about it. Oh, my it. God, dude. It, I, I played just the first stage last night. So I, we were, I was watching Game of Thrones until like one in the morning. And then Mike goes, let's go, like, let's go to bed. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll be up in a few minutes. I want to just play a stage of this. And I'm like, this is I played as Leo, of course. And it's, it's so fucking good. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to spending my weekend with that. It's just I'm so excited. It's a love letter, it. dude. It's so great. Oh, yeah, you're gonna love it. You're I that. can't wait. That's limited run, right? They might be doing a physical version of it, but it, it's uh Do- Dotemu or whatever that French Oh, right. Publisher. Limited run just puts out the Yeah, and the developer edition. is, um, why can't I think of their name? The guy that did, uh, yeah, Tribute. The guys that did Panzer Paladin, I have it right here. Oh, and yes. They did uh, Mercenary Kings, which was a game I really love. Dude, it looks so good. It does look so good. I'm just shocked to
2: see how much love it's getting so it's gotta be it's like it's that amount of love it's like Sopranos or Game of Thrones it's like there's there's gotta be something behind this hype now you're saying it now I gotta double down on it
1: well it's it's our TMNT like I don't know anything about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles after I don't know 1993 or something like that I, sure. I have no idea what was going yeah. on after that this is the shit I know Classics. like the, the first stage is the is the shredder dozer you know like abandoned thing and you fight in the first it's so it's it's totally but the overworld it's pretty cool the overworld is the first ninja turtles nes game like the one everyone hates well although i although i love that game so like it's that that top down kind of map oh and that's how you get around isometric yeah it's nice and um, classic nice a little ode and all pixel art no tricks just really
0: really beautiful yeah love it good stuff i can't wait to check it today's episode is brought to you by angie Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.
1: All right, Dave, let's get into Game of Thrones season seven if we have to. Here we go. And I think we do. Now, I'm curious what you make of it. And I I will just start with this. Of course, you guys can write into us on Patreon. You know this about different topics. And I wanted to start with this because what I've really been trying to do with this season and the next season, I know there's so many notes and, and pieces of interest and interviews and all this about these seasons. I know I've heard some things about the way the actors felt about these seasons. Apparently, they didn't like them. I think you can kind of tell, um, especially in the next season, but I think you can kind of just read it that like some people are just not buying in anymore. And I know that there's a lot of production drama about the guys that were running the show wanting to be done with it. Of course, we're far surpassing the subject ma- or the the, uh, the material that they were they were focusing on from the, the five books that were released. Good so point. we are well advanced of... The intent of the books, and I know that they were told what these things happen. You can tell it's like a series of bullet points because that's what the show feels like now. It feels like a series of vignettes, and you can tell that George Martin sat with them and said, like this is, these are the things that happen in whatever the fuck the book's called, Song of Spring or I don't know what the. And it's like, okay, we'll just do all of that. We'll do it in seven episodes, and none of it will make any sense. That's kind of the way i I, I felt about it. and so. Walker Simmons wrote into us and said, Jon Snow is one of my favorite characters in the show. And after the amazing conclusion to his resurrection arc at the Battle of the Bastards, I feel like the writers didn't know what to do with him. This is a Mm -hmm. problem I have a lot with choices in season seven. While not as bad as season eight, this is where a lot of fans noticed a lot of strange choices by the writers and pace that felt extremely rushed. Almost like the showrunners just wanted to be done with the show and didn't know what to do because they ran out of source material. Do you guys agree that the season is a noticeable step down in quality? What parts felt rushed or out of place to you? Arya and Sansa easily outsmarting Littlefinger and his death was one of the low points for me. I think that there, while there are a couple of really cool things here and while the ideas expressed in the show dig, I think are neat. Yeah. For instance, I love that the Lannisters basically rob the Tyrells and destroy them to steal their gold yeah. like, because they need to hire the mercenary armor. Like, that's, fu- that's a dope idea, right? Let that linger for a little while, maybe. I love the idea that they capture the Dornish woman and her daughter. And we see that one scene, but like, let it linger a little bit, of course, seeing all of the different types of armies fighting each other, and the dragons intercepting them and all of this is awesome. But with all of that, there's so much just some of it is comically bad, I think, actually in, in this season, just just from the, the point of view of like, what is what are you doing? I, I, what are you doing? I, I would have preferred they just said, like, we're not going to finish the show actually than it have gotten this season because it feels, I agree with what was said. It feels like an obligation. And it, it, I don't know if it reads the same way to you. And I feel like I can see it on the actor's faces. And I don't know if it's just me reading into the, in, too much into it, mm. but it just, the whole spirit of it feels different. I even think it feels cheaper and looks worse. And um, so I'm, I'm curious, am I just being way too hard on season seven? Yeah. And it's
2: not just you. It has a very interesting, cadence game of thrones from season to season as a show in its entirety, because if you think of something that's considered, you know, also golden age, mad Men, Sopranos certainly would fit into this category, the wire, anything that it's, it's seen as really wonderful quality as a whole. And that there's no real weak, weak spots or chinks in the armor, right? Game of Thrones has a really weird cadence because It seems to get worse and worse, especially after season four, at least in the public's eye or in the viewer's eye, five, six, it's just kind of a step system. It's ascending or descending in quality all the way to the end after a certain point, let's say from season five, certainly through the end of season eight, which is very interesting. And I don't, it's funny because in watching season seven, I watched it a couple of times. We had a lot of time because of things that happened just in the rhythm of the show we had a lot of time to watch it. So I got to watch it all the way through again, twice, two more times. And I don't remember liking it this much the first time around. I actually think the bad moments or those moments of, of weakness or where it looks like the acting is suffering or they're kind of meandering with the story. I think it's tempered by some other things that I really enjoy. I think the fast pace actually kind of lends an air of fun to it. Characters are kind of coming together now, especially the people that undertake the quest north of the wall to kind of seek out the army of the dead. You know, you have Tormund and Jorah and Jon Snow and Thoros and Beric. They're all coming and and Gendry all together kind of undertaking this quest. I think there's an era of fun in the show that I didn't really recognize in my initial viewings that I kind of really enjoyed this time. And it's funny because... When you, when you know something is considered poor and you know a specific season of a specific show isn't highly regarded, I'm kind of sitting there and trying to replicate those emotions, right? I'm like, why, why am I enjoying this? Everybody thinks this is so horrid. What am I getting out of it that these people weren't seeing or what am I not seeing that these people were right about, you know? And I have to say, I actually kind of enjoyed the ride with season seven, but I could see where the criticism comes from. I think what you have and where it kind of lands in season seven is you have all these characters, you have this King and this two Queens specifically, and all these characters surrounding these three sort of keystone characters. And you have to kind of bring these characters together now to fight a common foe. And I think The sheer amount of characters and kind of where they landed at the end of season six and having to squeeze them into a space where they become allies to battle this common enemy. I think that's really difficult to pull off and they don't have a lot of time to do it, especially in giving them less episodes, as was typical in the series. Seven episodes. Now, some of the episodes are longer. They cheated to an hour, 10 an hour, 15.
1: Yeah, the last one is an hour and a half. Right.
2: Yeah. So they're pretty epic. But I think they, again, were kind of faced with what we kind of were tasked with in season five and season six. You have to do a lot, or they felt like they had to squeeze a lot into not a lot of running time, not a lot of air time. But again, I, interestingly enough, and I have to go back and kind of think of the reasons why, I think in season seven, it kind of came out and resonated in a joyful way for me where it just felt like a proper fast-paced adventure, and I, and I enjoyed it. You know, you have a lot of exposition, you have a lot of lingering in Dragonstone and Winterfell between Arya and Sansa, where it kind of gets, I get a little impatient with the bickering at Dragonstone, especially earlier in the season with Daenerys and the way she's kind of being a little bit, I don't know, she's being a little obtuse, say, that I get a little impatient with that. But, and the, you know, the kind of infighting at Winterfell with Jon Snow leaving, should he not leave? The Lords are kind of taking exception to Sansa being left in his place and all that kind of thing. He shouldn't go, the you know, the King of the North should stay in the North. But I think the wheels start to kick up towards the middle and the end of the season. And I think it's just, I was just entertained. You know, I was enthralled. I was fooled into liking it.
1: <laughs> well, no, I don't think, I think it's it's valid to come in and like it. I know some people do, but. I'm surprised by that because I just think that like you were saying, like you get a little impatient. I never felt that way. I just, I was always like, why don't we get more of this? None of this feels right. Like for instance, you bring up Ari and Sansa and it's like, mm. why aren't we, why are they so like, there are weird things with them where Sansa clearly is kind of, there's a scene where she's like kind of looking up to Cersei or being like, I learned, I learned a lot from her and that's like almost yeah. jarring. Then yeah, the next yeah, yeah. second her and Ari are like fighting and that's jarring. And then the next second, aria spying on her and she finds the man it just all happens so fast and i'm like this alone that them, them getting back together was supposed to be a big deal and i love the sisterly tension and all that but they just don't let they, there's not enough room to let everything breathe and like you said there are fewer episodes but that was a choice right and that's why i'm so confused that people looked at all that all they had to do right and everything they had to tell and yeah and all that they had to write and kind of Figure out, and then they're like, "We're gonna, we have to do, we're gonna do seven episodes." I really do think that it would have been better served to just been like, "We can't." Like, I think I know this is crazy to say because I know that they would really leave a lot of money on the table, and it's just impossible. I guess from from contractual point of view or whatever, but I think HBO would have been totally within their rights to say like, "We don't have any more source material to work off of. It's not our mm. fault. We're done." Like the, when we started the show, we were under the assumption that the the series would be done by now, but it is not. So, what do you want us to do? We can cobble some bullshit together. And that's what they, I, I feel like that's what they did. I mean, that's what I feel like this feels like to me. And you can see I, that line of demarcation
2: where like, they're not working from source material anymore.
1: Right. I like yeah. I and I think that it, the production felt rushed. Like, I don't know a lot about the details. I'd be interested to know more when I'm done and I don't have to kind of judge it anymore because I really want to judge it just as a piece of fiction by itself. The the stuff going around it is immaterial. But I really do feel like you can see a visual step down in this in this season. Like, the, the, I don't think it looks as good. I don't think a lot of the the practical stuff looks as good. I think some of the back backdrops and these matte painting stuff style things they look bad. Miniatures there, in some sc- case. There's there was a scene where the dragon is coming back to Dragonstone, and Jon Snow is it's like confronting Jon Snow, and sure. Jon yeah, Snow yeah, like yeah. lets him lets him smell the hand. But look sure. at the compositing on that shot. Like it doesn't look like an HBO show. I don't it's know what up. I don't know. Like, I, and I was I, I reflected the mic. I'm like, this is kind of a shame because a smart. Production that wanted to take its time and do it right. This would have been a perfect time to do something practical like Jurassic Park. Not the flying in and shit, but like the close, like smelling of his hand and him petting. It's like this should have all been done with practical effects. Yeah, I agree he with you me. on that. He's one. meeting the dragon. He's the first person outside of their of the of, you know, the the Khaleesi and her group that have sure. ever interacted with one of these. Things. Sure.
2: It's an epic moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So like,
1: I just looked at things like that and I'm like, take your time. Let it let it marinate. Let even the, the 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 affection that John and and Danny feel for each other. It's cool. Like, but let it grow. Let us learn more about it. Let us see more of it. That's it my biggest forced. complaint, I think.
2: Yeah. And it's not organic. And, you know, you bring up this is a great. This is a great point too. With Sansa and Arya, and sort of their reunion, and that obvious resentment between the two of them, there's something there that's very unappealing to me about th- their relationship through most of the season until maybe the murder of Littlefinger, and then add in Bran sort of being a shell of himself. There's very there's something very unappealing and. Just unpleasant about the three of them being back together. And, you know, I like that the fact that there's drama, like, okay, it's actually good storytelling to say, okay, the three of them are together, but there's uneasiness. There's unresolved issues. There's a lingering resentment. There's some hatred. There's some misunderstanding, whatever. So, not that that, that reunion has to be smooth and all love and hugs and everything like that. Like, it's got to be a, um, a gradual sort of coming back together again i like that just something in the writing maybe the acting could be anything there's something just very unpleasant about that arc between the two of them slash the three of them in this season that i didn't like and um i don't know maybe that we've come such a long way right it's 2017 now we're in season seven it's been a long ride There might be something in me now that's just like, all right, let's have fun. So when the dragons ambush the Lannister wagon train or when the seven go out into the wilderness to pursue the army of the dead, whatever, like I'm just ready for fun now. That might be my thing now where it's like, maybe I've grown tired of the drama, the infighting, the heaviness I think the show gets extremely heavy at certain points where there's very little levity or very little joyfulness, you know? So I might've been really in, I'm kind of realizing now that I might've really been in that headspace where it's like, all right, I'm just ready for a proper like Indiana Jones adventure or something, you know, something, something indie-esque or something where it's like, or maybe just something like Lord of the Rings. Like I don't need an elf snowboarding down a shield or anything like that, but- something where it's going to be um a little more upbeat, I think. It's fair to say. So I I and they might have got me with that. Especially if you look at the last 3 episodes of this season, kind of lands right in that wheelhouse. So I ke- I come away satisfied. But well, I could, I, I really see it from your perspective too. I can understand that. I really can. Well, I get what it's you mean. It's a lot mean. different than what's come before,
1: right? Well, I, that's what I'm saying is like, I get what you mean in, in the sense that the action is compelling and interesting, and it certainly is, but the the action is necessary because those are the inflection points that happen throughout right. the show, right. the Battle of the Bastards, the Battle of Blackwater, like all these things have to happen so that we can move to the next phase of the storytelling. But for me, it's like, okay, you you get through th- these battles, but then the next phase of the storytelling doesn't happen. It's just like, okay, now it's to the next major event. It's like, okay, but what about we earn those moments in Game of Thrones, and it's important. And again, I was talking about the quote-unquote smugness. I don't really mean that, but having read the, the first book now pretty much all the way through, this meticulous level of storytelling doesn't come through in the show from the very beginning compared to the book. And so by this point, it's kind of sad that I'm not saying the books are better. I don't know enough about them to to know that or not. I don't think it matters if the books exist or not. All I'm saying is that there's a clear parallel between the books existing, the story being written by George Martin not on the back of a napkin or in bullet points or in vignettes. And they were able to copy that and make that into some compelling television because they were able to focus on what they were good at and he was able to focus on what he was good at. He'll deliver the story. You guys will adapt it for the screen. And now it's like, well, no, you will both delivered the story to yourselves and then adapted for the screen and and it, I just think it shows and I really I just feel like with Peter like on Peter Dinklage's face. Yeah. There are certain there are certain things where I feel like I I feel like I'm like wow, he doesn't look like he's happy to be there. I don't Especially know Especially him. It's I, yeah, true. Like, and I think it cuz I think that they would know better than anyone, right? Like how powerful and important this is and then they're kind of just seeming to go through the motions and I know God, by the time we get to the second or the last season, two uh, I think it's two years after this was filmed. And I think they were totally ready to be done with this, right? So, like, yeah. just be like, all right, how are we going to get through this, and what, what's going to what's going to happen? So, it's interesting because I I agree with you. The action is awesome. Like the end scene, for instance, of them destroying the wall is awesome. It's an amazing scene. Now, the scene makes no sense, and we'll get to why I, 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 I why I think that is later. But it's cool. But we have to earn it. And I just so I just want to go back to this idea of HBO should have said like, listen. If you guys, because as I understand it, the guys that were running the show didn't want to do it anymore. That's yeah. that's how I understand it. Benioff and Weiss. Right. And if I were if I, HBO, i had been like, then you are gone. Like we 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 have to then we'll get someone else to do. See, I did not even burn. know about that. Right. And because I always thought it was like they were out of material, blah, blah, blah. But it really wasn't that at all. I, they were just like, we don't want to do this. And wow. And so and I think wow, I don't we're nev- I don't think we'll ever know all the behind the scenes stuff. You would imagine they're probably frustrated that they didn't get the material that they thought they were going to get. And they're kind of stuck in this. I would be pissed, too. It's like you didn't deliver your end. We delivered our end for sure. So who the hell knows? And I'll read more about that when I'm done reading and watching. I don't want to paint my impression of anything based on that stuff, because I just think it's, it's interesting and academic, but it's not material to what we're talking about at all, because it's the quality of the stuff on the screen that I think really matters. And so Sure. I think it would have been incumbent on HBO to say, like, we need we owe more to this show than that. So if you guys don't want to do it right, we'll find showrunners that will do it right. And so I think there's a lot of blame to go around here. But absolutely. But I think it's fairly well known that by the last season, I think some of the actors were like, this is (laughs) very similar. very similar, I think, to Star Wars. Like what happened ended up happening with Star Wars, where a lot of people that were in it were just like. No. Like you, you can feel them sandbagging it almost. So
2: yeah, I'm sure there there was a lot of nerves going around that table, reading, you know, doing that script reading around around the big table in episode uh, by season eight, where they were. They, I'm sure season seven cast a pall on the rest of it, and you could see, you know, there's video footage of that. You know, the the actors, the cast around the table with their scripts in hand, and looking kind of unhappy or at least uneasy. It's so interesting. You could definitely see, I'm glad you brought it up with Peter Dinklage because there is a marked sort of level, a lower level of quality in his acting in this season. I think so. That is really apparent. And it could be, I I think Peter Dinklage is one of our best actors, period. I'm not talking about just Game of Thrones. I think he's one of the most talented dudes or dudettes out there. But Maybe it was just what he was given. Maybe it was just the source material and the script and the writing, but there is a marked difference in what he brings to the table in this season that is so glaring. That is one thing I noticed. It's like he's, it's actually a different style. It seems like he almost like devolved into a B acting style or something. It's very, very odd at times, you know, and sometimes you can see that brilliant shine through. I mean, that level of talent, Right. Can't lose that forever. But yeah, it's so interesting. It, it really that that was interesting for me. Well, I think like guys like Nikolai, Castor Waldo and stuff like I think he brings it the whole season. I think he's wonderful. I think Jamie is like a great character in this season. I think, or at least maybe not what he's given, but at least his performance on screen and what he's dealing with with you know Euron coming in and the constant infighting with Cersei and everything like that. I think he's really good. So and you know, same for Lena Hetty. You know, I think she's great, too. So I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think. Uh, there's good and bad. Let's put it that way.
1: One of the. Yeah, I agree with you, too. Like some of the performances are really great. Actually, someone wrote in about a specific scene that I really loved in, in this season. So let's focus on something positive. <laughs> Chris Fazio wrote in and said, how great is that final scene for Elena Tyrell with Jamie? Oh. Well, I don't look at the latter seasons of the show too fondly. Their final conversation definitely stands out to me as a high point and one of my favorite scenes overall. Diana Rigg does an amazing job, and it left me thinking that Olena had a pretty victorious farewell for someone who just lost a battle. She didn't lose the battle. She lost the war. She did. One of the cool things about this this season is that we see both Highgarden and Castlery Rock for the first time, as far as I know. And that alone is one of the great shames of how quickly it goes, because I think they don't bring you there intentionally. In fact, I don't think we go there in the book either because I don't think any of the story is told from a Lannister's perspective, at least not at this point. Oh, because okay. you know, each chapter starts with like the chapters just called Arya, Sansa, Jon, whatever, you know, and I think there's like seven or eight characters that you see from their perspective in the first book. So we don't we wouldn't necessarily see these people too much anyway. But I did love that scene because she finally gets that off of her chest and it probably feels so good. She it's awesome acting all the way through with her and Jamie where So she was she's like, is it the poison? Will it will be painful or whatever? And she's like and he's like, no. And she just swat like drinks it immediately. And then she confesses that she, you know, she killed Joffrey. So what did you think of that scene? And and their their kind of interlude. And again, just it would have been so much cooler to lead up to that. She's having there's a siege outside her castle walls. They're fucked. They just got all their shit robbed. Everyone's dead. Man, that could that could have been one episode that really should have been one episode. And this is what I'm saying, like one one episode should have been the season, just you know, the, the assault on Highgarden. One episode should have been the assault on Casterly Rock. Absolutely. You, so just seeing these things and kind of passing is lame. But this scene I thought was really cool. So what did you think of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, Highgarden and Casterly Rock, we hardly knew ye. Right. I mean, that's, it is. It's literally the first time we're seeing any of these two often pointed to places, right? Often referenced places. I mean, this is one, this conversation slash confrontation between Olena and Jamie is one of my favorite scenes in the entire show. I think it's so good. It's, it's a scene I've watched on YouTube just by itself. And you know, what's interesting about Olena? we know she was like, kind of like the female Tywin, very clever, always one or two steps ahead of their adversaries. Right. But here's the interesting thing about Olena earlier in the season she pretty much advises in not so many words to Daenerys to like attack with her dragons and be like, you be a dragon. Like, right. that's what she tells her be a dragon. If Daenerys listened to Elena in that moment, none of this shit would have happened because Daenerys would have just ruled Westeros by that point. So it is interesting that Elena and in this conversation claims to have, have outlived all of these clever men, which she has and she would have if her ally listened to her, which is an interesting point. And then, of course, the confession, which we do know that it was her. But if you weren't yeah, paying close attention, to, she confesses
1: to Marjorie, so, Right, exactly. Right. In
2: season four, season five, whatever it is. So if you're paying close attention, you had already know this. But what a, what a wonderful payoff moment. And what a fuck you to the Lannisters, even in her last dying breaths. It's so old Lena Tyrell, so Queen of Thorns. I love it so much. And also I love the shot where the Unsullied army is pulling up to Highgarden and she's at the window and she sees mm. it coming. I love just the sense of scale there,
1: you know, and I love yeah, those little, pl- Those it's very Castlevania that look, um, oh, it's up, so cool up, up, up dude, balcony, you know, and then how the, it
2: like, just, it looks out on everything. Yeah. Like Cause you like you, you see, see Dracula,
1: he's like in ca- the, the box <laughs> art for Castlevania too. I think he's like in one of those little out. Yeah. And-
2: like one of those turrets, like high right. up in this window, super it's cool, way too big. So, it's so cool. It's such a great moment. And and just the way Jamie kind of deals with the barbing and it, it, sort of trying to be a gentleman. And then she's just kind of getting his goat over and over again during the, the cadence of that conversation. And to the fact that, you know, she, she who wins, you know, you walk away and he's pissed when we, we when it cuts back to him and he's kind of throwing around the gold and everything like that and bronze like what the fuck happened like you know like why aren't you happy like we just got this huge treasure we're heading back to king's landing we won we beat them you know type of thing she got his goat uh it's good shit it's a that that's the thing it's like those are the maybe i'm being robbed of the bad memories by those epic memories of the season where it's like Wow, that's some of the best tel- That conversation is some of the best television I've ever seen, probably.
1: Totally, and I, and it, we don't get to see enough of Olena, and I think we see a lot of Jamie, which is cool because I do think his performance is good. And this this sense of sadness that overcomes the character, I think, is portrayed really well. Like Definitely. in that Olena scene, I didn't remember because I'd only seen all of this once at this point until now. when I'm watching it again, and I, I was like, "What does he do?" I'm like, I, I half expected that he like took his sword out and like beheaded her or something like right in that moment, you know, like. When, when he said that, but of course he didn't. And he goes back kind of with his tail between his legs. And we of course learn to that Cersei is pregnant with Jamie's kid. Now this is, this is where I think one, this is one of the things that I think gets a little unrealistic or strange. I still don't understand how she's holding power. They say King's landing is a million people. That's more the people than in the entirety of the North. And it seems like that, that mass of humanity could just take power at any moment. And she seems to have no friends and they're going to just be. It's so awkward when she's like, I'm going to tell everyone you're the father. And it's like, what the fuck <laughs> is going on here? You know, but I, I don't understand what is happening here. How did Cer- it's almost too convenient, like Cersei becoming queen. I, I, again, they should have spent more time on that. That's a real seizure of power. And that that coup, as it were, would have been an interesting thing to have witnessed in and of itself. And so I just I'm you're almost left shocked because she's so great. She's such a great character. She's a Horrible person, obviously, but a great character. She really compelling is to watch totally the, the central antagonist. A lot of awkward embracing of incest and all that with her and Jamie. But I love how cutthroat she has and I, how, how cutthroat she is. And I do love the subtlety of everyone's armor changing during the season. I don't know if you noticed that, which I really dig. I like that as well, where everyone just starts wearing black armor. <laughs> like, so cool. It's really cool. And the mountain, I think, is because I, I don't remember what hap- ends up happening with him. I know he dies, as I remember, in the next season. But he seems to be crazier and crazier under the mask Like it, compared to like when he first was revived. I don't know if that's intentional, but he seems yeah, to be less and less human. In, right, exactly. Yeah, and I do yeah. love the scene where. The Hound goes up to him and he's like, what have they done to you? So good. whatever. Yeah, it's so, it's it's really interesting. So anyway, what did you think about since we talked about Jamie, What did you think about Cersei and everything going on in King's Landing? Kyburn, who I still think is one of the coolest characters. I, I do like that character so much. And I wish we got more of him. I like when he picks up the hand of the <laughs> so like he's super like everyone's horrified and he's like walking towards it because he's so genuinely curious. interested. Yeah, it's, it's cool as hell. So, what? yeah, let's let's focus on King's Landing and that kind of sect of the Lannisters. Anything to say about them?
2: Yeah, Kyber and the mad scientist, right? Cersei, it is interesting because you can see with the death of Tywin seasons ago at this point that the, the power vacuum at that left and then the Faith Militant coming in and Cersei getting the upper hand and finding her way to, you know, talk about a survivor, right? She always finds a way to win. Then the Sept explosion. I guess anybody, with the exception of Olenna, who was going to be a threat to Cersei, died in that terrorist attack at the Sept in King's Landing, right? So that kind of left her in power. And I guess it's also kind of a play or a nod to the fact of what they often say, especially in the season, that Cersei rules by fear. She still has her army. She's still known. She's got that reputation. She's got that murderous reputation. She's basically ruling by fear at this point, kind of a figurehead. But she still ha- maintains that kind of level of power. And I do like the fact that now with the absence of people like Tywin that they could say like, we're just going to live out in the open now. Like, yes, we have this incest- disgusting, incestuous relationship, but we're going to kind of rule as king and queen and we're just going to let everybody know and we're going to kind of air it out and everybody's just going to have to deal with it kind of and being unapologetic about it. Like we're sick of I'm sick of hiding. We're just going to kind of be out in the open with it now. That's interesting. That was an interesting change. And even Jaime was taken aback by that, of course, right? But what's interesting is that she she's always what something that occurred to me in the course of the season was like, all right, why Cersei's kind of on top? She doesn't seem cowed by Daenerys and her two armies and her fleet and her three dragons. She doesn't seem cowed by this new king in the north. And she, the only one she seems really beholden to is this Bravosi Iron Bank. But what's going on with the Iron Bank on one hand? Because what if Cersei and Jaime just said, fuck, and came, you know, the Lannisters just said, fuck you, we're not going to give you the money back. What are they going to do about it? Presumably, you know I mean? they
1: have some sort of, and presumably, again, in the books. Yeah. You would know more. We would learn more about this because we do get a little bit of taste of of them when we go when the Tyrells go there. Right, that weird Tyrell dude goes there. The the father, and And so so you assume they have their own military, like their own
2: there too, right? Uh, Davos and Um, Stannis.
1: Right, exactly. Right, right, because they were going to to sniff things out. I actually like the whole Iron Bank thing. Again, it's just we need more information, and I assume that it's in the books or will be in the books, depending on where you are in the story. Right, Because, yes, they. it's cool that there's just this whole corporate entity and and exploring that kind of dispassionately, especially how they play up the fact that, like, none of them are the leaders. Like, you don't even know who the head of the Iron Bank is. Right. You see different people and they a all say. It's shadowy thing. Hey, it's cool. And how do they out.
2: enforce? You know what right. I mean? And like, that's what
1: I'm saying. I'm, they must have some sort of military. Like, they must be some sort of, like, Shinra, you know? Uh, right. In some way where they're a corporation with a private military or 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 the, or the money to hire one. You know, they have all the money and all the gold wrapped up and they they have their fingers in every every pie so they can probably just do what they need to do. But they should explore that more. I like that that connection. And again, I like the so idea good. of the Lannisters saying like the only way we get the Iron Bank. See, you could you could see that George Martin went to them and said like there's going to be there's so one of the plot points is that the Iron Bank comes and seeks the money that they're owed because they do play up in the previous seasons that the gold the Lannister gold mines are empty and that they've out, you know, they're they're twenty or they twenty million dragon gold dragons in in uh, debt or something insane like that, and so right,
2: something insane. So he
1: goes to them like they're going to come and seek their money, and so the Lannisters turn the tables on the Tyrells who have money and steal it from them, and they will eliminate the house. But I assume that it doesn't happen in one episode, you know, in the in the show, and so hopefully we would get a little bit more of a of a vision of why. The Lannisters feel it is so urgent to pay the bank back. Sure. Because you're right in the sense that what they could have easily done is said, like, we'll hire Because what ends up happening is that the they the Iron Bank on their behalf hires the Golden Company, a mercenary band. Right. Right. And they did that because they settled their debts with them. But you would assume that they could have easily just been like, "Okay, we're just going to hire these mercenary bands and not pay you back. And that's why I think you're right that the story is missing the penalty. And that's yes. why I think we need more information. Like they kind of play it up like they, they they seem above it all. Just the idea that the Lannisters are even interacting with them and groveling with them isn't an, isn't an indication of their power.
2: Yes, right? absolutely. And that leaves you fascinated and wanting more info.
1: Definitely. Right? I agree. Oh, I totally of course,
2: agree. definitely. All you see is this one agent that we saw is the same guy that was interacting with Stannis and Davos earlier in the show. You know, it's a, it's that same guy. And you get from that guy's sort of his persona and his um, personality and everything, you do get the sense that they're completely not worried about anything, like that they're on top. In this civilization, they're on top and they really have nothing to worry about. Now, he's surprised that they're paying back in one lump sum and he seems rather delighted by that. He also doesn't seem very worried about anything. You know, so yeah, that leaves you wanting more like, who are the, we know a little bit about Bravos. we know about the water dancing, we know about the house of black and white, we know about the assassins and all that kind of stuff. But what specifically is behind the Iron Bank? Like what shadowy organization is this? And Can we just get a little bit more of why this is seemingly the only thing that Cersei is sort of fancies herself below in the pecking order, right? So, yeah, it's just one of those things where I would have loved to have more of that.
1: It's uh it's this idea of they're in I guess it's just a a, a blatant illustration of their they're enthralled with money, right? and they, Sure. and how even this weird world that they live in, everything goes through a bank and money. It's a little weak in in, in a way cuz it's too on the nose, but I get it because I think things trend towards that. It's the same thing with uh with other features of the show too, where it like, it kind of turns into a zombie show almost. And it's like, uh it is a zombie show. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it really is. So you kind of expect more nuance to it. And this is where the nuance could have been discovered in a better season seven, but wasn't like, let's go to the iron bank again and be there and figure it out and understand it. Like a really cool scene in this, in this, and a really cool series of scenes. I thought in this season were seeing inside the, um, where the maesters are trained at old town and in the libraries and all of that. And there are cool shots of them talking around the tables and talking about their problems. And you get a little bit of a view of to into not only what they do and how they operate, but what they lend to the realm. And, and they even say, like, I think Sam says to them, like, you can control this, right? You guys can actually totally control the entire situation. You're so important. And people trust you so much. Like you are the, you're above it all above the realm, the the, the concerns of politics and, And earthly things, so we do get to see some of that, which is cool. Like I'm glad that they got to explore that, and I like I like Sam's redemption. Oh, it's great. It's a little weird, but it's cool. Like I like that character, and I like watching his brother and his dad eat shit. And I don't think that they're I don't think they're on the nose enough about that. Like I can imagine. Like I don't even know the first time through that I realized who they were. Yeah, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I realized it either. It was only this time around where I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? And then you realize. Oh, it's like the dude you randomly saw, the Tarlys. These are Sam's people that rejected right. him. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It is also weird, though, because you have the Tarleys who are bannermen to the Tyrells and then ultimately the Lannisters. But just like in King's Landing with the Starks and the Umbers and everybody around them, like you would think there's a lot of families around the Lannisters. Why they con It seems a little forced that they concentrate on the Tarleys because they're connected to Sam like they concentrate on Sam's dad and his brother Deacon because they're associated with that one character where there's Bannermen all over the place that served the Lannisters. So that always seemed a little forced to me. It's like, of these guys really important. We see them the way they de- have their dealings with Jamie and Bronn and everything like that. So that seemed a little bit shoved in there to me where was like, all right, we're going to have the dragon assassinate these two guys just because they're associated with Sam. It's, it seemed like, you know, I mean, time is of the essence. Like we have so little time to let this story play out. We're going to concentrate on these two morons for a while. Like, yeah, you know, it just seems it just that did always seem. For it's not that I don't like it. It's fine, and it's tragic that again, the, their white Daenerys is just like wiping out an entire family. And Tyrion tells her that, like, why do that? You know what I mean? But she, again, she's showing a glimpse of that Targaryen anger. Whatever you want to call it, craziness, insanity, whatever. But yeah, that was a uh, that's it. That's another interesting thing. And Sam with the Citadel and the Citadel, yeah. You know, with Jorah and the grayscale. And I, I like I, I like Sam's arc. I like his selflessness. I like his bravery, in that he again he kind of does it by other means than waving a sword or a warhammer. You know, he's got to do it with his intellect. He's got to do it with his bookishness, with his intelligence you know, he's got to do it with the book and the scroll rather than the sword and the hammer,
1: you know, it's kind of cool. Which is cool. Yeah, I dig that. I dig that. I like that too. Okay. Let's talk about the ironborn quick because they're important here. And again, we don't see them too often, but they're, they're relevant. Theon's kind of, it's kind of sad watching Theon. He's so until the very end. He's just so he's just cowering and sad and, the whole Reek thing is behind him, so I guess he's not so broken by that anymore. But he's done all these horrible things, and there are a couple of cool scenes. One uh, at Dragonstone with him and Theon in the throne room is a pretty cool scene, a uh, John and Theon rather. And the other uh, cool scene is when he's on the beach, obviously beating the shit out of, that, out of that guy, and going and finally deciding to be a man and not, you know, when, when Yara like needs his help and they're fighting ship to ship, and she's she's so cool, and then he just jumps away. It's like, oh my god, what are you? <laughs> Doing you're so embarrassing, like just, and everyone sees him do it, and 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 Euron is an interesting character. I don't know that I like the character very much. He seems to me to be like Captain Jack Sparrow almost, like yeah, it's very weird. Like his his movements and his con- I'm like, what is this? This is strange. Yeah. Like it's just a strange portrayal. But I don't know. So, but I like how they have an incredible power where they're like, we have the Navy. And I like that they're dealing with their own civil war, which they basically win. The Euron side wins that civil war. But I like how there's two different navies and they're conflicting over leadership and and all of the rest. One of the cool things, though, I like that Euron's involved in is when he just storms out of the meeting at the end when they're trying to get the truce. And I forgot about that. And then I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't remember that at all. I guess that's the end of Euron. And then at the end, they're like, no, this was all part of the plan. There's double and triple and quadruple dealing going on here. He's it's going pl- to pick up the Golden Company with his ships and bring them back to Westeros. So do you have anything to say about the Ironborn and their kind of arc here, Euron, Theon, et cetera?
2: Yeah, Euron's interesting, right? He's like a pirate mashed up with nineteen seventies Mick Jagger or something. Yeah, it's you know, very weird. Jimmy Page, rock star, <laughs> pirate. Thing. I think he did that. that motion was perfect like he's just he's interesting, but you know what I like about it? It's an interesting portrayal of a pirate. I was think I wasn't thinking Jack Sparrow, you're right in kind of bringing those two together. That comparison is actually right on the money. but you don't see a you know you don't think of the typical peg leg beard, black beard, giant hat, parrot type thing. I like this kind of interpretation of a pirate, and the fact that we talk about this with the Ironborn they are kind of like. Rock stars, right? They take they they pay the iron price. In other words, they don't earn anything. They take it, you know. They take their women, they take their gold, they take the places they live. That they live, they have this pirate code, and now you have the Ironborn kind of broken in two because you have Euron, who's in command of the most of the Ironborn, and then you have Yara, who's kind of the rebellion, the smaller fleet, the the breakaway sort of whatever you want to call it, fragmented part of the Ironborn. That's kind of, there's some infighting going on there. But Euron drawing up with Cersei is interesting because Cersei can, you you, you initially think, okay, she's going to have control of the seas, the 14 seas, right? That's clever. But then that whole plot with him going to pick up the gold company from Essos and making it look like he's turning tail and running you know, again, Cersei's always got a plan. And I love the bad blood between Jaime and Euron because Euron says he's doing it for one reason. He's doing it so he could marry Cersei. And Cersei, in not so many words, agrees to that as long as he proves his worth. Totally. And he does. And Jaime's got to endure this whole thing, you know? And you kind of feel bad for Jaime until you realize, well, that's her brother. <laughs> You know, I, mean, yeah, I was
1: like, gonna say, imagine enduring the horror of your sister marrying another man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> for Jamie, this is his worst nightmare. You know, then you realize, oh shit! Then did kind of reminds you again, and you get rolling again with the whole incest thing, which is, is crazy. It,
1: is, it always does check you. Like that is one of the cool parts of the plot is it always checks you. It's like, unrelenting, too crazy because don't feel too bad for Jamie. He's fucking right. his sister. He's you know? sick. Right. And don't feel too sick.
2: Bad What's happening here is sick.
1: You know. You no, know, with and, that with that love triangle you almost feel bad for brienne like when he just walks by her in that one yeah. scene it's pretty pretty sad
2: absolutely
1: dude but how much yeah. how much uh what's his name loves her the uh the the wild man with a uh, oh torment bro- torment yeah.
2: yeah oh it's so great it's so, so funny
1: he, he's oh, talking about how they're gonna make like gigantic babies together and shit like that what a what a so wonderful great. character he's awesome
2: and theon dude right as soon as he whisks he short sure, sure whatever, right? He proves his quality, he whisks Sansa out of Winterfell to save her from Ramsay. And it looks like, you know, Theon is reborn, right? And then in that moment where they have to fight Euron and the invading fleet, and he again, he jumps overboard. He runs, he flees. He's a coward. It's He's not broken of that sort of reek yet. It's like, it was a, it was a harsh reminder of Theon is not, John spares him on the beach. He says the only reason I'm letting you live is because you helped Santa, basically, or I would kill you right here. And then, of course, he has that conversation with John where he says, "I have to go and help Yara because she's the only one that helped me in the past." But and then you're hoping, and then he, of course, as you said, he has the fight, he has the fist fight with the Ironborn captain on the beach, and I love that moment too because it reminds you how fickle the ironborn are because they're following this nameless captain until Theon gets the upper hand on him and beats the crap out of him. And then they're following Theon. It happens in the space of three minutes, whereas like they were ready to kick Theon to the curb. Now he's their champion. Again.
1: Yeah, they had a plan. They were going to go, well, because they were going to go and, and reeve or whatever. And and uh, they and hide. They, right. And, and hold Right, life. exactly. Right, and, um, from, the, from the dead. Right, the ironborn have like a huge advantage actually and in this situation which is why it's so funny that Euron still Definitely. agrees to help like you would that would make sense to be like fuck this shit I'm out and, he really wants Cersei but they do reiterate or at least in that conversation with this nameless captain and Theon they reiterate that like they're like we're gonna go and just take this island rape the women take the wives you know kill all the men and Theon says like we're not doing that anymore and so they they are still at least that sect is still committed his sect, whatever, it, whatever it exists, is still committed to like normalizing themselves a little. Yes, bit, which is interesting. And so we'll see how that how that develops. I wanted to ask you about the hound in this season, because I feel like. Last season and this season, we see a hound like the hound go, is going through this really fascinating arc. And we don't get we don't get to taste it enough even when they are taking more time last season, went with the church and all of that and how he's like building it and they kill these guys, kill all his people. And it's very sad. You can tell that he's like becoming enthralled in some way with the fire religion, which is ironic. And of course the irony is obvious because of his experience with the mountain as a kid and getting his face burned and all of that. But then he finally looks into the fire. He sees the, the mountain that looks like an arrowhead. It's a vision. So he's, he's like softening and, one of the cool scenes I like it's a brief scene but when he meets up with Brienne when they're walking down the road and she like kind of forms up next to him and they talk to each other and they're both talking about Arya and he asks like how are you pre- not how are you protecting Arya if you're here. And so he's still concerned about her in some w- weird way. I really enjoyed The Hound in this season. I again wish we got more of him and it was fun to see him kind of get back together with the brotherhood and fight alongside Jorah and John and all of that. So what, do you have anything, any insight or anything you want to say about the Hound in the season?
2: Yeah, because he goes from being this sort of person that everybody fears, this sort of out for revenge, cynical, sort of self-serving dude, right? To somebody who, as you said, he's softening. He, the Brotherhood Without Banners is sort of bringing him along, Tharos and Beric, and when he has that vision in the fire, in that home, and he's he's starting to realize there is something to what Barrick keeps giving him an earful of, that along with ending up back at that hovel, that rural hovel of that man and that girl that took care of him and Arya back in the day and, and fed them. And then he kind of wronged them and knocked the guy out and stole his silver and everything like that. Showing remorse that they were dead and burying them in the cold winter night and going outside to bury them in the snow and everything like that. I thought that was a really interesting turn for the character. And then I I love the Hound and, you know, he has a just beef with his brother and he's driven by this revenge and you're kind of always pulling for him. You're happy he survived the battle with Brienne and all of that. Then when he ends up as part of the team heading out into the Northern Wilderness to pursue the army of the dead and to... Do their research and find out what's going on. When he's part of that group of seven, I was so happy, and I was so—it's so cool to see him mashed up again with Jon Snow and with Tormund and with Jorah and with Gendry. It's so fun to see these characters that you're rooting for separately come together as one team. Thoros and Barrack, of course, in that group too. I, I love that. I, I just think it's so cool to see these seven heroes come together, and I just really enjoyed the hell out of that. And I love seeing the Hound as sort of part of that and seeing this seemingly for almost the entire ride so far this sort of independent unit this mercenary this cutthroat off on his own see him as part of a team was really satisfying and see him as an essential part of this team was really really cool and you know even the way he argues with Tormund and the way he uh, argues with Thoros it's 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 fun because you kind of see him changing and having to operate as part of a unit it's really neat i loved it
1: yeah it's uh this this um particular episode in this particular quest north i think is a fundamentally awesome idea this this notion that they're gonna go and get proof right they're gonna get a live zombie creature undead walker and bring it back to king's landing to soften the current civil war between the Targaryens and the Lannisters and maybe cool things off so they can focus on the common enemy of course that's what the entire season is about but people do have a lot of problems with how they executed it and I wanted to I wanted to acknowledge that I agree and Andres wrote in about this and said the season catastrophically broke my suspension of disbelief the -hmm. ground in this that the show once had is gone in the showdown on the lake, you're telling me Gendry was able to run back to the wall, send a raven to Dragonstone across a continent, and Danny was able to then reach John and his party beyond the wall in time to save them. Are you kidding me? These distances that used to take days and weeks to travel in early seasons. I agree that the whole execution of this, like this this trek north should have been done as soon as possible in the season and then dragged as far into the season as possible so that you got a better feeling for the scale and the scope of what they were doing so that more time was taken and all of that. And what they, what the the time they do spend on that makes the distances seem huge. So yeah, Gentry's just running like an old Roman messenger all the way back to the wall. And they do get this help. It is a little weird. They do try to indicate that a lot of time passes, right? They're getting tired on that little Island during the fight the water is freezing and reconstituting yeah. into, into ice again. So they do indicate that some time passes. But did you have any problem with the rapidity of that section? Because it is cool watching the fire sword come back out. I love it. All that different stuff. But And we we lost some people, um, including Thoros and others during that fight. Yeah, sure. But I, I enjoy it. I like the whole idea of just trying to get one of them alive and bringing them back. But do you like the way it was executed?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Andres is right. Like they, This could have been dragged out for an entire season. It's worth that. These are the characters that were waiting to come together as a team and see what they're capable of. And I, I love the fun of trying to capture uh, a living white or a, one of the dead to, to kind of sell it as this is the reason why we have to come together as a as a unit in Westeros and fight this thing, this common enemy. I love the idea. It's super fun. It's, it's just a really fun entertaining idea but it does happen really quick and you are left with the thought when Daenerys shows up with the dragons and helps them when they're stranded on that little ice island it's like wow how how fast did this possibly how fast can a dragon fly this is insanity and I think as far as time passing goes Kyle they definitely indicate that they it was overnight, but I thought that was it. I thought they just, you know, maybe one night pass because they fall they fall asleep on that little on that little archipelago. And then, you know, they're they're concerned that the ice is gonna harden so that the, the dead could sort of get closer, you know. And of course it does freeze over, and we find out when the hound throws that rock and the ice doesn't break. It's good stuff. But again, yeah, very rushed. It happens very quickly. By the time they let Thoros and Beric and the Hound out of that cell and head out, they find that little that little raiding party of the dead. Right? They kind of assassinate them, capture the one zombie. Gendry gets back to the wall, and they're kind of marooned on that little island. I think that might all be one episode.
1: Yeah, I think maybe it
2: is. two tops. You know, maybe it takes the 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 better part the better meat of two episodes. But that, and all the way through the rescue, the Daenerys rescue and Viserion dying, there's one dragon dying. Mm -hmm. So yeah, very, very quick. I mean, it doesn't make it less entertaining. I think it's really, I think it's a lot of fun. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff, draw it out, you know, tease it out and expand it. It's worth it. The characters are worth it, especially the characters. That's the big tragedy, I think, in rushing it. Or not using your time wisely, maybe lingering on things that would have been, it would have been better served to linger on these things and this campaign in the North. More so is that that's the big tragedy left in the wake, I think, is the characters. The characters are worth more than that. These are wonderful characters that we've grown to love and root for over the course of the better part of seven seasons. So I think that's what's really, that's the biggest mistake I think in the whole thing is just not respecting the characters. They're worth more than that. These are wonder. I mean, these are some of the best characters on television, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I'm glad you brought up the dragon because um, Mr. Hollywood wrote in about this and said, Hey, fellas, very curious for your thoughts on the season. I'm pretty ambivalent about it personally. There are some great moments, but I think it's largely overshadowed by the many lackluster or outright dumb moments throughout the season and the final season that follows. The, in my opinion, harebrained scheme to travel thousands of miles to retrieve a white walker to show Cersei. While making a point about the urgency of the entire situation only for it to have no effect whatsoever other than a dragon joining the army of the dead is really representative of the drop in writing quality that we see much more so in season eight. It's a decision I judge way more harshly in hindsight than during my initial viewing. What did you think about the dragon joining the undead army? I love this idea. I think this is a fucking solid rock solid idea. Again, not executed very well, but I love how even though I think the this, and I've said it from the very beginning, I think that the designs of the White Walkers, or specifically like the White Walker generals are kind of lame, but watching them like just silently hand one to another, like one of these spears, and then they just walk and they just, it makes this weird, almost TIE fighter like noise when it flies through the air and it takes the dragon out and he just falls through the ice. And originally you're just like, holy shit, they just took out, it's like taking out an aircraft carrier in World War II or something. It's like you just did massive damage to your enemy. That's, but I remember at the time being like, oh, shit, I never thought twice about it. It's like, oh, the dragon's dead. But then they somehow hooks chains on to it underwater. I have no idea how they they did that, considering the water I thought was deadly for the zombies. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they get it out. And I love how it turns into an undead dragon. I think that's super neat and surprising. I think it raises a major plot hole. And I will talk about that later. But what do you think about the idea of this? Well, not only losing one of the dragons and what that means to them, but also the undead dragon kind of coming and bolstering their enemies
2: the night king is fucking terrifying
1: i don't know how i feel
2: about the army of the dead as a whole i think the undead horses are particularly creepy for some reason I just the image of their hollow faces and all that kind of stuff yeah there's something about and you know they do a good job i think of making the army look creepy you have the undead giants the glowing blue eyes you saw the undead their fight with the undead polar bear earlier in the thing or whatever kind of terrifying D&D bear that was earlier in the sh- earlier this season. But the Night King is terrifying because he has this very staid Michael Myers cadence to all in a day's work attitude. And P.S. He almost kills, he gets very close to killing a second dragon. I mean, right. he just fucking misses it. And it's like, yeah, kind of like washes, you know, dust his hands off and he's on to the next thing he's pretty scary by the way just I love sorry, the sorry
1: to, uh, i was gonna say just yeah, to yeah. cut in he could have killed easily killed the dragon that Daenerys was on yes he he aims to the one in the air for some reason i'm like what did you do that for but yeah so I that's the know. only reason that, he misses but anyway I'm that sorry. is
2: a weird that was a weird take because maybe it's because that one was still Viserion was still up and breathing fire and destroying. Yeah, you know, yeah yeah, yeah potentially murdering yeah. people sure but um or maybe he just liked the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah, he's undead. like fuck
1: it man he's feeling himself at that point totally
2: dude the, uh, but the undead dragon i love i mean give me that cartoony adventure video game shit you know it kind of comes out he's got the glowing blue eyes and the blue fire it's so it's so he got the giant holes in his wings i mean he's a zombie dragon i mean and it just reminded me of like the little that i know about tiamat and there's red dragons and white dragons and black dragons and they all some breathe electrical bolts and some breathe ice and some breathe fire. It was like, give me that. I love it. Like, I I love that kind of stuff. Like I'm ready. And not only that, but I thought that a lot of the CG animation, particularly of the dragons, particularly with that battle. And at the end where the undead Viserion is breaking down Eastwatch and destroying the wall, that section of the wall, I thought it was really well done. You know, the, the effects of the fire, the way the fire is kind of playing off of the ice and the follow through of the tail and the wings, like I thought, it was really well done. I know some of the stuff is six, seven, you know, five, six, seven years old now. So I thought, I thought it holds up pretty well. I think, I think it was yeah, some those, of the, the compositing is bad. Yeah, compo- the
1: compositing is bad, and that's that's why I think things that are purely CG like that scene is that looks great. First of all, it's cool so it's hell to see Eastwatch. We don't, I don't think we ever see it, and we we know that the wall goes into the ocean or the water, but we don't know exactly how it looks and how it works. And it's cool to see it. Yeah, but I guess this this brings up a plot hole, though, I think. And um, Trevor wrote in about the the wall, though. He says, hello, Super Moriarty bros. I'm so glad they never made a season eight (laughs) because the (laughs) final season of this, uh, the final scene of this season was something special. You knew the Night King would get to the south eventually, but how he did it was impressive. Watching his army tear apart that unbreakable wall and just walk through the rubble with that ominous musical score playing in the background was a truly chilling final image. How will our heroes survive this impending doom? Only your imagination can figure that out. Anyway, how do you figure (laughs) out how do you two feel about this closing scene for season one? Um, So this it is cool. It's a cool visual. It just introduces a massive plot hole for me. The army has been hobbling forward through the the far north reaches towards the wall slowly. Right. And they they have this they have this single minded goal to get to the wall and cross it. What were they going to do before they got the dragon? I don't understand. Like, it seems like so obvious now that it's like, yeah, we're going to fucking obliterate the wall with these dragon, this dragon, and you're gonna, we're going to punch a hole through. But what were they going to do before two days ago? I, that's that's my one major thing. I It's cool that that was a solution, but I would have loved to have known what the intent was. Yeah, because were they going to scale the wall and try to climb it and attack the castle there and all that? I, I, I'm just so it, I don't know if it's a plot hole so much as it's just I'm curious what their intent was before they happened upon a dragon. Uh, it, it's it's strange true because really. they were still coming. Right. They were just hobbling slowly at, at, like you said, Michael Myers speed towards the wall. They were doing it before the dragon. I just, that to me, I was a little hung up on where I just wanted to know, because I do love the visual, like where they just make mincemeat of the wall of the wall. Oh, it's really in seconds. Yeah. It's interesting. But did that bother? I guess that didn't bother you.
2: Did no, you know, you know what, though? It would have been kind of cool to see that battle take place if they didn't have that super weapon, right? If they didn't have that dragon, but they have the sheer numbers, they have the giants, they have some giants, So, and they obviously have other things. You know, God knows what they have. They, we saw the bear earlier again. So it would have been kind of a repeat moment of the Manta Raider battle on the wall where you would see that 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 troops Scaling the wall, the 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 crows using their weapons to protect the wall would have been a protracted battle rather than just a slaughter with the undead dragon just, you know, eviscerating the wall. So that would have been another interesting thing, you know, God forbid, though. I mean, we didn't even have time. We barely had time for this. So that could have been, you know, we probably would have got to look at what would have happened if Mance Rader really got to have his second night attacking the wall and even more so because what are they, you know, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of troops in the undead army. So that would have been, they could have just piled on top of each other's like building blocks. It got over there eventually, you know, there's so many of them. They're expendable.
1: Yeah. It would have been almost cooler for them not to have had the dragon just to to see. Yeah. Agreed. But, yeah. But I do, I agree with you. I love the the different dragons with the different, fires and bolts and all that and so to it's see that cool. and i thought when i when a dragon got revived because i knew that was going to happen I, I was like does it does it blow blue fire I, I think it does and yeah it did which is which is neat yeah cool visual still fun i want to talk to you about brand next josh oh, yes. ryan wrote into us and said by far for me the most disappointing aspect of season seven was how it didn't continue to build upon the idea that brand could basically time travel and possibly even affect the past Season six's Hold the Door episode proved that, at the very least, the Novikov self consistency principle logic applies to the universe of Game of Thrones. I was greatly looking forward in season seven to seeing if any of Bran's original personality was still in there and trying to break free and exert agency over his body again, provide more intrigue and insight into the green eyes, ravens, the three eyed ravens' origins and true purpose in the grand scheme of things. Instead, the character was essentially got downgraded to a blank faced, passionless, Basil Exposition, whose sole role was revealing Wikipedia Wikipedia facts about Jon Snow's parentage, which ultimately went nowhere and occasionally warging into crows to check up on the Night King's progress. How cool would it have been to see if Bran's curiosity kept pushing deeper and deeper into the past? How cool would it have been to realize that multiple critical historical moments in the Game of Thrones lore, recent and ancient, could have been caused by Bran's unsuccessful attempts to change the past? Even if he failed or hit hard limits, that would explain why the past can't be changed. It would have been nice for him to have at least tried, and it feels like a huge waste of potential for storytelling that the writers ignored what say you my, my whole thing with Bran is i just don't understand the purpose of this character at all like like i'm not being facetious in any way what is the purpose of this character really we drag all of this out with him in the books and in and in this reality too in the shows and it just feels all for naught. And I actually almost think his acting is fucking funny in this season because it's just mm. it was this direction like BFDR in the wheelchair with the blanket over your over your lap. but also have no personality or expression on your face. <laughs> it just seems so strange. I think that when we noted in previous episodes, the way they almost abandon the brand arc and then kind of go back into it, I think it, it doesn't serve it very well. And it, it, it's a total waste of time, in my opinion. I, I don't. I don't get it. What do you think? Am I wrong?
2: No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's how it smacks. Um, And I think a lot of it probably is the acting style at the outset. I like the idea of this and, and the tragedy behind this young boy sort of trading his persona and his personality and his humanity for this ability, right? Like he becomes a shell of himself so that, and in return he could see the future and he could see the past and, He has these visions and these abilities and he could warg in and out of people and crows and all of these kind of things. And as a return for this gift, he kind of sacrifices who he is and the inherent tragedy in that and also something that could be helpful as an ally of the living, right? But yeah, there's something about maybe the writing crossed with the acting style of this particular player that it just doesn't work. and. It's not fun to watch and it's just kind of blah and unpleasant and just, and every time that you're on brand, you're just like, all right, can we just get to the next plot point or the next set of characters or whatever? It's just not entertaining the way, the way they pull it off. There's, you have to feel like it's a trade-off as a viewer, right? You have to feel like, okay, we lost this young kid, this young boy, he's not who he was, his humanity's been sacrificed for this gift, but what he's doing is necessary is taking over as the three eyed raven and being brought along by the children of the forest and all this kind of stuff. But as Mira says in this season, like he's he died in that cave, so you have to feel like there's something that we're being given or that he's being given in return, but it just feels dour, you know it just feels like eh. You know, and it's not it's not fun. And you know, it's entertaining to watch Sam use his gifts to save Jorah of the grayscale. You know, Sam's not out there waving a sword around, but it's kind of it's kind of fun to watch his escapades and watch him sort of going above the heads of the other of the other um, Meisters and all that kind of stuff. But it's not fun to watch Brand do what he does. You know what I mean? Even though he's not a big action hero type, but it's, you know, they got to make it more like watching Samwell, where it's like, all right, I, I, you got to be rooting for him. You got to be pulling for him like you are with Sam. And you're just not. <laughs> no, And everybody feels the same. So what is it? What component in that equation is missing? I'm not
1: sure. You almost can't abandon it. It's like, well, you're committed to this idea. And I, I know it's like the supernaturalism and he's kind of the insight into the past, into the reality of John's actual identity and all the rest. Actually, we'll just bring this up now. Mac Daddy YX. I'm sorry, it's Mac Daddy X4. I'm sorry. Dagon and Dagon number two. The show's writing (laughs) falls apart during the season as they move further from the books. But I feel one of the most avoidable issues is when Jon Snow is revealed to be Aegon Targaryen. Rhaegar Targaryen already has a son named Aegon, who is still alive at the time of Jon's birth. Any other name would have made more sense. The writers probably forgot about the other son, even though Oberyn spends the entire fourth season talking about the death of his nephew Aegon. Amongst others, imagine if your parents had named you both Dagan iconic name, but they're going be only one per generation. Thank you for writing in. So, yeah, I'm I have to you need to explain this to me or I, I don't know if you understand. I don't really get this. Like what's going on with Jon Snow? OK, he's it, it, and I, it's funny because Mac Daddy brings up using the same name. There is a thing in the first book that is different than the show in okay. that Robin is named Robert in the book. And. They clearly oh. changed it in the show so that you don't get confused between Robert and Robert. But oh. Robin of the Vale or whatever, like Little sucking Robin on his yeah. mom's teeth, he's Robert in Oh. Book. So weird shit's happening with names. Oh, in the that's book. weird. Okay. But I'm confused by this. I don't understand this okay. at all. So can okay. can you explain it to me? So
2: it turns out that to my understanding that Jon Snow was actually, is actually not a bastard because he was born of Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Tar- Targaryen, who secretly married. I think the common understanding was that Rhaegar Targaryen raped or captured Lyanna Stark at some point, and Jon Snow was born out of that, but it, what, they had an actual love affair that they were keeping hidden, that they, they were actually had a proper marriage, and Jon Snow was born out of that. Now, I don't know about the other su- surviving son at that time being known as Rhaegar. I thought,
1: no, no Aegon. that could the be other right because- is A- He says the other son is Aegon. There's oh, two Aegon. Agons. Right.
2: Because Daenerys, this is weird, but try to follow me. Daenerys says earlier that the two, not Drogon, but the other two dragons were named for her brother. Viserion for Viserys, who we know early in the show. And the other brother that I guess we don't see or that already perished was, uh, was Rhaegar, who Rhaegar was named for. So I don't know about any other kind of brother, but that's the story with John. So John is actually a, he's not a bastard at all. In fact, he's a Targaryen. And that also might speak to why he's able to kind of interact physically and emotionally, I guess, with the dragon.
1: Yeah, this is... I, I Which don't know. we'll I, see
2: I, more in season
1: eight. I imagine if and when the books are finished that this will be much more concise. Obviously. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed for sure with plot stuff. I miss things all the time that I'm supposed to. I just, I don't clue into things very well, but I do feel like this was pretty obtuse.
2: No, so this like, season is very obtuse. I really do get it. Anyway. This season is obtuse. It goes so fast that plot points like this are really... They're glossed over very quickly. Like if you if you kind of divert your attention from watching for two minutes, you could miss something major like this, which it, which is a major thing. I mean, John's John Snow is the he's the main character in the story. I mean, if there is one, right? I mean, him and Danny. So it's important. So yeah, it's it's kind of skimmed over very quickly. But th- to my understanding, that's what. Bran was saying that he's a he's not a bastard because he was born out of love. He was born out of marriage. He was you know he was he was born out of a proper union, and that makes him a Targaryen, technically. Or gotcha. I guess really half Stark and half Targaryen, which is yes. interesting.
1: Yeah, right? definitely. And there's a quote: "Robert's rebellion was built on a lie." I I got that, but yeah, interesting. Mm. I guess mm. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> James Ketchum wrote in. Now that we have the kind of who's everyone who's playing the game right now uh, on the table, he says top notch fantasy that resonates and stands the test of time teaches us that a good king is capable of making his land flourish and his people have better lives. We see this, of course, in Lord of the Rings, Dune and Narnia. The health of the land is tied to the health of the king. At this point in Game of Thrones, we have received the lesson loud and clear that no one deserves to rule as every single individual who takes the throne or pulls the strings behind the throne causes wreckage. I got exhausted with the show at this point, even though there are some wild action pieces. Did you ever care at this point who won the Game of Thrones as no matter who it was, they would just muck it up all again? It's interesting because the only obvious answer to me is Jon at this point in the show that you'd want him to take control, but he doesn't want it. And everyone else is is deeply flawed. I would consider, even though Daenerys has done all of these really great things like freeing the slaves and all that. She's pretty heinous. She doesn't. They do try to play her up and make her softer in this season, I think. And I don't know if that's intentional or in the books as well, where they're like, well, she doesn't want to attack King's Landing because she doesn't want to kill everyone and all of that. And that's what you were saying earlier. Like she could have kind of just gotten this over with if she wanted to have a total war footing. And they, they, they removed that from her, but it can't erase all the fucking crazy shit she had done in the past. And they bring up some of the stuff, like she crucified all these different people and, destroyed entire towns and assassinated people and did all these things and i so i i don't think she that's why i think it's so funny that people named their kid Daenerys you know because it's like wow you really should have waited because she's not how it ends yeah yeah right exactly and so at this point in the story it's like well can't be her stannis probably would have been the best person because he has some sort of birthright to it and he seemed like the most kingly and brave but he was just on a quest for power, Robert obviously was a drunk and an idiot. Ned Stark would have been too honest, probably, for the throne if he had gotten it. And that's why I'm confused about how Cersei even took power and how this is being allowed. That's why I'm so conf- that's there's a huge gap there in their growing fascism, basically, and the people allowing it to happen. It's just there's a lot going on here. So I agree with James that it's almost like no one really deserves to win. Who cares? And I'm, I'm do you agree with that or is, are you pulling for someone in particular?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I naturally pull for John because I think you're just drawn to him on a human level because of his humility, his honor, his integrity. It's not that he doesn't do things wrong. It's just that he seems the most deserving, right? I think there's a little cheating involved in knowing how the show ends through season eight with Danny. I think in particular, because you know what happens with her. But I do think you do see glimpses of that Targaryen Insanity. You know, the way she corners Varys in the beginning of the season, and sort of, you know, Tyrion has to step in and basically save Varys from the from the brink because she really goes after the jugular in this. And it's sort of at random, right? She shows glimpses of that hostility and I think that anger and this the ability to kind of just that, I don't know, that just that deadly sort of personality where it's like you don't really know what you're getting there's a little bit of a crapshoot involved with being on her side and an uneasiness and then of course we know cersei i mean she's out for like two people and you know she she'll do anything to anybody to survive you know and she has and she has that track record so i think if anybody it's john but i could definitely see that ambivalence where it's like who gives a fuck like let the dead Maybe the dead take yeah, maybe over. Maybe. The, dead,
1: maybe the Night King has the better ideas. I don't know. That's we it. haven't asked. You know, we don't know knows? what he stands for. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting, though, to think that is a. That's why zombies in quotes are just so lame. I just think it's so lame generally because it's like, well, what is the goal other than just destruction? Right. It's cool if that's an idea, but how many of those stories are we going to have? It's much more scary to deal with a, a group that wants to destroy you and has some sort of goal, some sort of sentience to it where. That's why I loved that show Colony. It got canceled, but about the alien invasion of Earth, where it's like you're dealing with pretty serious people here, you know? (laughs) Right. It's not just that they want to kill you. It's that they have a plan and they're here for a reason and all that. So maybe the Night King is an egalitarian, passive constitutional ruler. We don't really know.
2: Maybe that's an option. And you know, with John, like with John, too, much like his dad, Ned, like you can't you could see him being a just King, but can you really see that personality working in such a cutthroat, vile world, much like if Ned survived and the legacy of Ned Stark lives on in this show. That's something that they do in this show. You have a character that dies in the first season spoilers, (laughs) but they keep his legacy and talk of that character and who he was and his effect on the surviving players Really haunts the show seven seasons later, you never see that. You never see a character that that we lost six seasons ago have such a legacy effect on the show, which is really interesting. But and I think John is a lot like Eddard Stark. I think that had he been the one to rule this world, I don't think John's philosophy and his code and that sort of integrity and that unapologetic goodness. I just don't think it's long. For this world, you know, and again, if you think about the dead and the Night King and what's their goal, it's like, yeah, but that's almost scarier, right? Because it's like, what's bacteria's goal? Like bacteria Mm. wants to survive,
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? mm
2: -hmm. Like bacteria would rule the world if it could, right? But not knowing that and that being sort of an alien thing to us makes Mm. it even more frightening in a way, right?
1: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. All right. Let's touch on a few other things. Before we wrap it up, one thing we have to touch on is the kind of out of thin air in my estimation revelation that uh, Littlefinger is kind of the mastermind behind the death of John Aaron. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interesting piece of um, of information, I think, that I've only garnered from the book that I don't think you would necessarily know. And I think I might have mentioned it when I mentioned I was reading the book the first time is that the book is really, really the first one really about the death of John Aaron, like completely. And the investigation about who killed him and why. And we don't really get that in the show too much after the first season. That's kind of why, you know, Ned's going to King's Landing and and all of that. But the book itself is really focused on this detective tale in in a lot of ways about like who oh, the that's fuck cool. did about who. Who did this? And I like that. And um, you know, there's all this framing, and 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 so Tyrion is ultimately framed, but we find out that Littlefinger is kind of the mastermind of the whole thing, and that he kind of engineered this entire blood feud between the Lannisters and the Starks that didn't exist. So, what do you uh, what do you make of that revelation? It almost seems like you almost forget why he's even around at this point, but. In the books, I suspect that the intention is going to be much more significant because the first book focuses so much on on Eddard Stark's investigation into John Aaron's death.
2: You know, and you could feel in the show, even though they don't linger on this, you could feel something in the show that 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 happening, that man's death that we never get to know, that we never get to see really in life. Is really the catalyst for everything. And you kind of know, if you're really paying close attention and you're a super fan, like I've become, like you're really paying attention to that plot point. And even though it's not, it seems of less importance, you know it's kind of like the foundation that everything's built on, at least early on. All I know in the show is that we find out eventually, I don't even remember what season, that Lysa is the one, her his wife was the one that poisoned him. And now we know that Littlefinger was behind the whole plot. What I was left thinking of, which I sh- should have kind of been mindful of a lot earlier in the show, was who's manning the brothels in King's Landing? I thought that was his whole operation.
1: yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know like, like he's, he's a, a little business thing man protege I don't know
2: what's going on over there in the
1: words of Donald Trump, he's a businessman doing business. So- <laughs>
2: But, you know, it was kind of interesting to see the tendrils and little fingers still working on his plots and sort of pitting, trying to pit Sansa and Arya, you know, against each other. That was his latest scheme. And um, it was interesting to see the character come to an end because, you know, he had such a big effect on the show. And I think... That sneakiness and his dubiousness and all that kind of stuff was a big part. You know, played a big part in us wondering which way things were going to turn. I mean, this character played a big part in. I mean, he's the whole reason why Jon Snow is the king in the North because he had control of the Vale and the Army of the Vale is really who saved the Army of the the North in the Battle of the Bastards. You know, the Starks in the Battle of the Bastards. So it was. It's interesting to see the character come to an end. And the whole thing with the you know with Lisa Aaron and Robin and where the hell is that character right now? We don't know. We know Lysa's dead, of course John Aaron is dead. But um yeah, interesting stuff, man.
1: Before we go, I want to and you can bring up anything that we didn't bring up at already as well. I wanted to bring up four more things. Two that sure. I liked and two that I I didn't. And uh, two that I actually think are probably some of the funniest things in the, about the show in a bad way. So I'll start with those and then we'll end with good things. OK, the first thing is that everyone's really nonchalant about riding a dragon after they do it like <laughs> this is an insane an insane jump in <laughs> logic for a, ga- a, a show that is so grounded. One of the cool things about the dragons is watching people's reactions to them existing. That's one of the most satisfying parts of watching the show as opposed to just reading it is and the dragons are not even in the books yet is just that I'm reading are it's, it's kind of disappointing. It's like, Oh, everyone hop on. We we live in a world with no trains, no cars, no planes, but just hop on the dragon. (laughs) And then that, that that doesn't like shock you. There's even a scene where like Jorah's like falling off. And I was like, this is stupid. Yeah. Yes. It would have been much cooler if the dragon fought while they escape somehow. Right. with I know. I know that, that it's like if Gendry can run back to the wall, then these guys can get away while the dragon's like covering them in some way. Escort, right? Yeah. Escort mission. So I thought that that was silly. <laughs> the fucking <laughs> stupidest thing in the show. Stupidest. Actually, the dumbest fucking thing is this idea that there are archaeological ruins underneath Blackstone through a massive hole in a cavern along the water that no one knew were, was there. No at least, one ever knew. Like, they've mined from there before, but you go deeper and deeper into the mines, and he's like, look, these are like the first men or the whatever. It's like, and it's like, what? How did you? First of all, the society <laughs> claims that it's like thousands and thousands of years old. So how did you, which I think is part of the, re, part, which makes the show weaker. I don't like that it's so old. It doesn't make any sense like you haven't you haven't it evolved at all in thousands of years, thousands of years. You've been living like this in in this kind of renaissance world. But that really bothered me. I had a real hang up on that. And there's a throwaway line that kind of tries to explain it where. Danny's talking to Tyrion and he's like, you didn't even know it was there. And it's like you didn't know the mine of dragonglass was underneath dragonstone and that there is massive (laughs) archeological ruins. It's not like someone had to like blow this wall apart. There's a huge hole. I just, that just, I had a real hang up on that. It bothered the shit out of me. Yeah. That's a toughie. The two positives though, that I wanted to bring up is one, I love the illusion of the map being painted on the ground during the beginning. And you kind of see Mm -hmm. it get more and more complete. And then a lot of interesting dialogue and cross section scenes happen in that room in King's landing. And I dig that. I like the idea that she's like, creating the map on the ground and that's it. all that's their territory and they're kind of trying to realize it so i thought that that was a really cool visual that they revisit throughout the season and the other thing is that they really really toned down the sex and i know a lot of it has to do with and the nudity i know a lot of it has to do with the fact that like we're kind of deep in the shit now but it made the john danny love scene more powerful and i wish that they kind of got the hint earlier that it's like mm. we don't need all this gratuitous nudity like the, the nudity and the sex is over the top and insane. It certainly is not like that in the book. Like it's not. It's it's there. It's explains things. It's an adult, but it's not. Remember that scene where like one girl is like, looks like she's fucking the other girl from behind, and oh my god, little, finger, With little is, like, finger in the yeah, it's, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember that in the book. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, not, maybe was, I not gotten there yet. I was like, that's pornographic. Right? That's a long scene too really just drawn so out. weird and it's so yeah. and they really embrace it and i just think it's so in hindsight it's kind of a corny element of the show in my opinion where they were being a little too i don't know a little too come and it. watch
2: yeah yes because of this
1: yes very know? very stupid so but i like that the danny john scene where they finally get together is it's more powerful because they they don't show so much of it and Again, there's not so much need for it now, but I just I don't know I, that resonated with me. I thought that they they could have taken a hint and hopefully retconned everything. But but by the way, I don't know if you saw last night as of the time we're recording this, they announced that they're doing a sequel to Game of Thrones with Jon Snow. And are you kidding and Ed Harrington is reprising his role. Yeah. So, Get
2: the hell out of here.
1: Yeah. So
2: Holy, I knew about the Targaryen prequel, but they're doing a sequel.
1: Yeah, that's apparently happening. Yeah. Oh, wow.
2: I don't know how I feel.
1: Well, before we get to that, we have one more season to get through. Yeah. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Oof.
2: Wow. I got I, I to gotta, I gotta look into this immediately as soon as we're done recording, my friend.
1: What do you want to talk about before we go? Anything? I, well, I love, I
2: love your point about the dragons. I'll say one thing, not even speaking to riding the dragons in particular, which is a great point, but I do wish they met the whole idea of people seeing the dragons for the first time, whether it's Davos and John or them seeing it in the northern wilderness with, you know, Thor, with, um, well, Gerrard's already seen them, but, you know, characters like Thoros and Beric and um, the Hound. I wish they met that with more awe and wonder and shock. Like when the, even Jamie and Cersei, when they see Daenerys ride in on Drogon for the meeting, like, I want it. They look surprised and they look taken aback, but like, really, like these are, ca- these are creatures That have not been on this in this world for generations. The most anyone's ever seen of them is bones and skulls, if that. Most haven't even seen that. Most don't have a dungeon underneath a castle that they could go see, you know, a dragon skull. So the fact that these things are exist again on and the idea of what not only what that looks like, but what that means—whether you're on the side of the dragons or you're on the side against the dragons—just to meet that with a real sense of awe and shock and just to be blown away by seeing that. You know what I mean? Like that that would be so frightening and the most insane thing in the world. And I love Tyrion says at one point um, that I tell you, you get used to it, but you really never do get used to it. I like that little thing when he's talking to Jon Snow about seeing them for the first time. But I wish that they kind of played that up a little bit. That would have been kind of cool to do that. And you know you raise good points about you know the suspension of disbelief in various aspects. I thought the same thing about the sewers or Tyrion's secret passage underneath Casterly Rock. Like nobody saw that giant hole in the wall, you know, in this Lannister stronghold. That type of thing. So there's a lot of that type of thing where it almost plays into like a more fairy tale-esque kitty fantasy thing where it's like you got to s- suspend your disbelief when Sometimes it's unreasonable to ask that to that degree. There was a lot of that, I guess, in this season. Definitely. And that that's, points.
1: yeah, that's kind of like what, it takes me out of it a little bit, but it's no big deal. It really is.
2: And you know, you make an interesting point about the sex too, Kyle. Like I think everything, this is the season where we see Grey Worm and Missende go at it, right? Which is another thing much like the Danny and John love scene where it's less gratuitous sex and more lovemaking. The only gratuitous sex thing I could think of in this season is when Cersei jumps Jamie's bones and like goes right to her knees. It's not long, it's not a long scene, but I think Nikolai's bare ass is in the scene, right? I think so that that was the only gratuitous, very Game of Thrones-esque love scene that I can remember in this in this season. But they they do the tone does seem to be changing. So that's a really good point. And you know, I I kind of walk away from this conversation just wanting, you know, there's certain things like popping the lid off the whole Iron Bank thing or finding out more about how something like Viserion, like how the dragon becomes undead and the Night King's powers or something. But there's certain things you want to expand because they're cool, but they barely have time to handle what they handled in the season. So it's really not even realistic to, to ask for more, but all in all, I think it's a good season. Now we know where everything's tragically going to land in, in season eight and we'll get there
1: soon. Indeed. But,
2: um, but yeah, all in all, I kind of walked away from it very satisfied. I was also kind of fortunate in this case because I was able to take, I was able to watch it all the way through twice. And I think I even started a third time. So I was really able to digest, think things through stuff like that. But um, yeah, all in all, I think if it just stayed even keel or maybe even dropped, maybe even went up an echelon to like season six quality for season eight, that would have been, that would have been kind of cool. But it's funny to, to end be ending season seven because I think there's still hope. You know, there's still hope right now going into season eight. And then how many episodes of season eight? It's not it's less than seven, right? Is it is it five?
1: It's six, I think. Six. Okay. All
2: right. So we only have six more episodes to go for this conversation. It's very interesting where we've landed.
1: Well, dig. That's it for season seven. We'll convene in the coming weeks for season eight. I'm excited. Appreciate all of your There'll patience out there. to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll wrap it all up and and uh, we appreciate everyone riding with us. These shows are doing pretty well. Um, it's not often that we spend so much time. I think it'll be, some, you know, like 15 plus hours of Game of Thrones content by the time we're done. So pretty yeah. crazy. But um, let's end this episode, day like we always do with a dad joke. And uh, I leave it to you.
2: All right. Let's throw it over to our friend Joe coming at us from Twitter. DM. I'm excited about this one because it's a Game of Thrones dad joke. That Joe sent us. Okay, Kyle, here we go. Why do the Lannisters have such big beds? I don't know. Because they push two twins together to make a king. <laughs>
1: Son of a bitch. That's good. I like that. That's a good Yeah, one. that's right.
2: Jamie and Cersei are twins.
1: Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah.
2: So not just brother and sister. Gross. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Prince.
1: I think worse. All right, Dave. Well, thanks for your time, my friend. Have a good weekend and fun stuff. Yeah, indeed. Um, And thank you all out there for your love, kindness and support of all things. Knockback and Last Stand Media, patreon.com slash last stand media for your inquiries, for early access, for Q&A's, get your name in the credits, all the rest. We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Stephen Nieder, Ross Maranca, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLV FMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Interfield, Lord Starscream, Jacob Dunnabin, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knox, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Sort of Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Rita, Benjamin Mama, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez, Espinosa, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen-Rui, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parides, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H-Tronge, JT, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Andrew Morgan, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadeth, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex LaPierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bol- Matt Flowers, Kennums Joseph Baker, Bustard, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnan, and Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Alum, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, D.B. Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algarit, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Mar. Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzech, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lewin Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vazquez, Adam Kinniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi.
0: Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's angi.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind.